Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is the author Josh Roberts, who's the author of Anxious Man and Generation Drift, Why We're Up Career Creek and How to Paddle Home. That's the book we're talking about today on the podcast, which I really enjoyed. He's a mental health writer, speaker and consultant, and the co-host of the Voicemail podcast with Jamie Lang. He started his career as a strategy consultant at Deloitte before moving into advertising, which were, you know, in quote, good jobs. And then three years ago, he experienced a rather intense mental breakdown, which culminated in being diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. He wrote about this really personally in Anxious Man, a really brilliantly brave and honest look at what he went through. And inspired by all the comments and the stories he received, he resolved to quit his job and devote more time to trying to help others on the topic of mental health through his writing, broadcasting and public speaking. I really enjoyed this new book by Josh on careers, mental health, comparison, success and why so many of us are drifters, as he calls it. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as we just had a really good time chatting about the topics that we both love talking about. So I hope you enjoy this one and I definitely recommend grabbing a copy of Generation Drift, which is out now. Thank you so much for subscribing. Don't be shy in leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and I'll see you again next week. I'm so excited to talk to you about this topic. You know it's close to my heart and I feel like it's not normal that so many people are so miserable in their work at the moment. And I really, really loved your book. I wanted to start off because I actually wanted to talk to you about Anxious Man when that came out and we never got to. So for the listener's sake, would you be able to talk a little bit about that book in a nutshell? Because yeah, I think it leads really nicely onto this book as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so that uh, the first book, Anxious Man, uh, notes on a life lived nervously uh, came out in 2020, right in the middle of the first lockdown. It was the book. It's a book about um, uh, the mental breakdown that I had in 2016, um, which was uh, has become something that's kind of depressingly uh, common. I was a mid twenties, mid to late twenties uh, bloke working in you know sort of professional services office job kind of thing, and uh, it just kind of all too much and I went to a party one night woke up the next morning to discover that my literally my mind had collapsed and I ended up being diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and that's what the book is about it's a comedy um no, <laughs> there are jokes in it but hopefully it's like a, a helpful and hopeful book about what it's like to experience a breakdown and then get better mm. thank you for that because I, I think it's important to for people to know that just because you're coming at this topic from that angle, I suppose, of someone who has rebuilt your life, made decisions, put your well-being first. And actually the person writing this book felt like someone who had broken through a lot of barriers and actually you're happier now and you like your work now. And in many ways, there's an optimism to, to a book that is about a big problem that we have at the moment. Well, there's something, there's a commonality between, uh, well, I mean, the, the two things are so interwoven, being miserable at work and being miserable in life are two sort of two sides of the same coin, I think. But one of the biggest learnings and the thing, you know, that I always say to people about mental health is it always, always gets better. And when you're in the middle of a depressive episode or an anxious episode, the most pernicious thing is you, you, you think that's it. You think that's your life, you're set, but you know, it's never going to get any better. And I had the exact same experience in work as well, where 
you know, you're, you're dragging yourself onto the tube on a Monday morning or sitting through your sixth pointless meeting of the day, wondering what on earth you're doing there. And you think you're stuck and that there's no way out of it and that you're trapped. And the reality, both with mental health and with jobs is, it is entirely within your gift often um, to, to fix both of those problems. Mm. And I wasn't really going to share this, but I feel like I want to just because I feel like you've created a really safe space to talk about mental health stuff. But I actually had my first panic attack. I, or it could have been an anxiety attack. I know they're slightly different and I'm not an expert, but I had one about a month ago and I thought, oh, right, this is me now. And of course, I'm okay. I'm okay. I've been okay for the last few weeks. I find that fascinating that you can, it can really freak you out to the point where you just think I'm never going to be the same again. And maybe in some ways I won't, because I now know how that feels, but you can ebb and flow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You ebb and flow. And, And also, I mean, I don't, don't, don't want to, to upset you or anything, but like it might happen again Mm. and you might have another panic attack. And but when it happens the second time, it's slightly less scary because you know it happened the first time and then you move through it. And that's the whole thing about recovering from a mental health problem is you, you just have so many moments where it does get better that eventually you get to the point where you go, no matter what your brain tells you, like, I've just done this so many times and it's, and it's usually ended up being fine. So I'm pretty convinced it's going to be fine long term. And you ebb and flow to the point where, yeah, when you're in an ebb, you can sort of ignore the flows or vice versa. What's the good one? An ebb or a flow? I don't know. Anyway. Well, I'm um, not sure. But I, I hear what you're so, yeah. saying because I, I know that this ma- might sound strange because I've only just, I'm only just processing really kind of what yeah. it was and how weird it was and how out of body it was. But I feel more resilient in many ways now because I do feel like I, so I went through something and I'm still fine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of the biggest most practical things that I did as part of my recovery was I would write down in my phone and it was something that the, the therapy guy told me to do was write down in your phone moments when and with dates and times when you, when you, you have the thought this will never get better or I'm completely stuck here or it's going to be like this forever. And then try when you have a, a later moment where everything is, the clouds have lifted and the day is broken, try to write down actually everything's fine again and the date and the time. And what you notice is that over time, the, the intensity of the episodes becomes shorter and shorter and the distance between them grows longer and longer to the point where most days you're pretty fine. But it's really important to acknowledge that tomorrow might not be one of those days uh, as a sort of safeguard against it. It all sounds so sort of hypothetical and wishy-washy, but like it's a real, it's a writing things down and trying to remember that stuff is really, really practical. And I found it to be really helpful in recovery. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that because I, I really don't want to compare as well what I have just been through to what you went through. And I yeah recommend everyone to get that book. So today we're talking about Generation Drift, your second book. Is this your second yes, book? The much, yes, the much awaited, the much highly anticipated <laughs> follow-up. <laughs> but I absolutely love the subtitle as well. It's called Why We're Up Career Creek and How to Paddle Home. And two of the big stats that you talk about at the beginning of the book is that 50% of us are more bored at work and 300% of us are more likely to change jobs, kind of more so than our parents' generation or or beyond. And I really wanted to talk about that boredom stat. I mean, we're just bored, aren't we, at work? And I know you talk about bullshit jobs and how monotonous and there's like a malaise, but I feel like I haven't read that specifically about the boredom. Yeah, it's um, it's a very, and I've had it, I've experienced it in, in almost every job I've had. And I, and I have to preface this with, 
of, you know, white, middle-class, heterosexual, born with all sorts of, of levels of privilege that I know lots of other people don't, don't have. Um, and yet, even though this is a middle-class problem, I do think it's a problem that's worth exploring because it affects so, so many people. Um, I've had it in every job I've been in, moments where you're sitting in a meeting thinking, if I, if I didn't come in today, would anything really different have happened? Would anyone have noticed? Would the world be a worse place? Or a better place and I used to work in advertising so I mean you know if there was less advertising in the world I think most people would probably be overjoyed <laughs> you know? so not only is my job pointless it's also actually probably bad news that's a slightly different thing to being bored though that's like a a, a more existential thing the, bo- the boredom thing is um it's just extraordinary I think there are some some systemic reasons why it's happened so economic specialization is a good thing if you run a business, but if you're a, a, a person working, you know, in a, particularly in a young person's job at the start of their career, specialization has, has led to a point where lots of the jobs we do are like single task jobs. You know, there's no variety in it. There's no um, difference in, in what you do across your day. It's a bit like being a cotton loomer in the 19th century. You know, the realities of modern work have grown much more tedious and much more disconnected from the end product as well. You know, if you're the social media manager for a car company, it's very difficult to see, very difficult at the end of the day to go home and say, I delivered this, I woke up, I created this in my in the course, course of my day. So we're more bored, we're more, more sort of directionless. And then at the same time, as the, the kind of reality is growing shorter, our expectations of work have grown much taller. So for, for a host of different reasons, we expect our work to deliver much more than people in the past did. Whilst at the exact same moment, the realities of, of work have got so much more boring. And it's bad. I mean, it really, really affects people. It affects people's mental health. It affects people's, um, uh, you know, their relationships, their sex drive, all this kind of stuff that we that I look at in, in the book. So it's a big problem. Mm. Yeah, God, you sum it up so well there. And you're so right. It is monotonous and it feels like it doesn't tap into that very core human thing of really simply just wanting to feel like you get into bed at night and you've done something worthwhile. Because if you're spending all day sending emails for something you don't really care about, it does crush you a little bit. The pandemic, literally, there were people saying to us that our jobs were non-essential as well. Yes. I mean, I do feel slightly non-essential, but um, I, I think there's also this thing, which is at, at the moment when you're experiencing that boredom, you know, you're standing in the queue to get your lunch or something like that. And you open, flick open your phone, you scroll through Instagram and you see how everyone is just having the most brilliant time. Or you scroll through LinkedIn and you see how everyone's getting promoted and speaking at conferences and all this kind of stuff. And it's, um, it's a real kind of kick in the groin, I guess. <laughs> you know? It's a, again, it's just kind of amplifies it. And it's also something that, that that element of amplification didn't exist for our parents. I wonder if that's one factor between the generational difference you know for our parents if they wanted to get wound up about their friend getting a promotion they'd have to go to a dinner party or i don't know the golf club or whatever middle class people do you know whereas now you can you can you can get envious whilst you're sitting on the loo or standing on the bus or whatever it is you know so it's kind of localized and amplified our comparisonitis It's so true. And it really made me reflect on my career reading this book because, you know, I I talk about being a multi-hyphenate, but actually when I get to the real core reason of why I've chosen this mismatch of jobs is because I think I get bored quite easily. And, 
you know, I do want to preface that with all of the many reasons why I was lucky that I could go and forge that career. But I remember being in my job and it was like we were doing the annual strategy meeting. And I remember sitting in the meeting and being like, but we did this last year because we were just, (laughs) we were doing the same thing again. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't want to be doing the same thing year on year on year on year. I need to go and do something else. And that was a huge part of my career. And you talk a little bit about that now that you do a few different things. Yeah, I do bits. I mean, I'm the same same as you. I mean, far less successful than you, but I do bits and it works really well. <laughs> Is that for me on your LinkedIn, like you. Josh? <laughs> well, I, do, I bits. do bits. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably should be. Gosh, I don't know what's on my LinkedIn. That, you've made me think about that now. I should go and check that out. Um, well, one thing that I find quite curious about this, I, I had a, a piece in the Times last week, the comments to which were savage. Don't read the comments, people. Um but one of the things that people said was, oh, you know, silly millennials, they, they, they can't be, they, they get bored easily and they, um, they can't be asked to work hard. And I sort of, it's such a kind of um, established cliche that, that, that I think it sort of passes as, as sort of being taken as read. But the reality is when you do one of these bits, bitty careers, it's much, much harder work. Like it's much, much harder than, you know, like I used to do trotting off to a, you know, an advertising company and, snoozing in the loose because you, your job is so pointless it's much much harder like hustling and little bits of money here and little bits of money there and doing the tax returns no one tells you about the tax returns you know all that kind of stuff so bored easily bored we may be but i don't think we're unwilling to work um, i think that is a myth actually yeah and i wonder if there is a pro to moving jobs because you know there was the millennial thing of oh they can't hold down a job and they move jobs so so quickly and the LinkedIn is all over the place or whatever. But actually, I think we're in a time now where we can be moving around a bit more. And I interviewed someone recently who was the editor of a magazine and she was like, I think editors should move on every few years. I don't think it's right Mm. for one person to be making the rules all the time. And I, I don't want this episode to necessarily turn into like me preaching about being freelance either because it is so difficult. But there is something to be said for how it's okay if we're bored and we want to move around a bit. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent, and also, I'm conscious. I don't want it to, to be a sort of intergenerational uh, pot stirrer, but there is also a thing where older workers and managers, man- managers and so forth, will say, "Oh, you don't want to stick at you know, you're you're you don't want to stick at a job. You're transient, flaky, and so forth." And part of me sort of thinks, well, isn't that the smart thing to do? And just because you had to endure twenty years in a career you hated, why why do we? You know, um, it reminds me of a thing. That happened at school when it used to be. This is a slightly niche example, but it used to be the case that you were only you had to wear shorts if you're a boy. You had to wear shorts regardless of the season, right? It was the middle of the winter. You had to wear shorts all the way up to I think it was year eight. And then when I got to year eight, they changed the rule. They said everyone everyone can wear trousers whenever they want. And my year group were livid because well we had to wear these horrible shorts and be freezing cold and have knobbly knees in the middle of winter. <laughs> But the teacher said, "Yeah, but you hated it. You were always asking us to change the rule. Now we've changed it for the people behind you." And I feel that a bit with work, you know, just because you have to go and 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 grind out a, a career in a sort of hollow uh, uh, space that you hated doesn't mean that everyone else has to. We don't have to now. We've got the option. And um, I think it's a good thing, like you said. Yeah, for sure. Because we don't have to necessarily, I mean, especially post-pandemic, go into a physical space as much. And in the book, you you use the phrase drifter and there's little quizzes in there to be like, are you a drifter? 
do we need to put a positive or negative on the word drifter or is it more a really useful phrase to sum up how a lot of us are feeling right now? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's positive or negative, but I, I hope it's a really all-encompassing idea. It's not that you, you know, are, are lying on the sofa watching daytime TV or, you know, or you're lazy or anything like that, which you might associate with the idea of drifting. It's just that you, you could be in really desirable, high-paid jobs and and so forth. But if you've always got a kind of pebble in your shoe, you're kind of, is this really what I want to be doing? Is this, or did I just kind of land into this and now I'm just kind of like getting bumped from role to role and not, not never kind of finding any comfort or rhythm. I think that's what I think of as being a, a drifter. I think in a way, I think I probably still am. So, I, you know, I used to work in advertising and, uh, and you know, big corporate companies and things. And now, like I said, I do bits. I'm still, you know, you'll have the same. You're not, you're not, you're never fixed. You're never immune to thoughts of, God, it'd be quite nice to get, have a company pay for my phone or whatever. <laughs> I mean, you have those kind of those kind of existential crises and things like that. So I'm not saying that um, uh, being a drifter is neither a good nor a bad thing. But it's yeah, it's just that sense of not quite doing what you you're supposed to be doing, what you're here to do. And I felt like that for years, and now I feel much less like that. I really like it because I think all of us are going to go through periods of drifting. You know, this is the whole thing. And what you talk about so brilliantly in the book is like the expectations of work have have shot up. We think we're meant to be in this dream job and we're meant to be slaying life every day. But actually, a lot of us are just sort of working it out, not really sure, and actually can still live a happy life doing that. Um, I wanted to read a little bit out of the book. Um, It's just a few sentences about sort of this this expectation that social media has projected onto us. Books about jobs tend to peddle a dream of less work, higher earnings and early retirement. And while I love the idea of earning millions by writing a blog for 20 minutes every other Tuesday, the plan here is to dig a little deeper. I want to prod and poke the tropes with a cynic's eye to see what's really going on. (laughs) I love that because I think that's what social media is is peddling to us. Yeah, well, it's social media. I also, you know, I've read all the books, you know, because uh, when I was 28 and panicking, I, I went out and bought all the, you know, million copies sold jobs books. And and also, actually, it's like irony because, well, you'll know this, you know, publishers quite like a method, that, a really catchy sort of gimmick, the 30-second work week or, or whatever it is. And I sort of thought, I've read all those books and I'm and I'm still miserable. Like they don't they don't seem to work for me. Although I should absolutely do not have method. Um, <laughs> I would read these books and they would say, "Yeah, you know, success isn't about money." And I'd go, "Really? Is it really not about money? It feels to me like it might be a bit about money." Or you're never too old to to switch up your career and try and find something that you love. And I like, really feel like maybe you get to a certain point, like your thirties or something. So I wanted when writing the book to kind of really, yeah, prod at those kind of tropes and cliches to see what was going on, mm. but also trying to be a bit practical. I mean, there is advice in there, but in a way, you know, who'd, who'd take my advice on this? You know, I'm, I'm not a gazillionaire living in Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I liked the honesty and the opinions you have in the book. And actually it's important, I think, to really say what you think. I think a lot of us sort of beat around the bush a bit. I mean, there's a there's a bit in the book that I loved about fear of earning less. You talk about lots of fears that people have around moving jobs. And that is a huge thing that I always get asked is like, yeah, it's all very well. We've all got the tools to do it, but I'm scared. I'm like really scared. 
And you talk in the book about how, you know, with the caveat of um, everyone being different and having different paths in, there is a fear of earning less. But actually, I know plenty of people that have taken pay cuts who are happier. And actually, it's something that I think we're scared to talk about. But you're talking about it in this book. So that's really good. Yeah. People are so weird about money. And and I get, I understand why, because it's kind of in, 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 in our society, it's so interwoven with your sort of definition of self is how much money you have and what that money affords for you. And also your journey to acquiring the money. Did you, were you born with it or, you know, were you not born with it? And money is so central to how we see ourselves. I have to say, if I'm being completely honest, it's something that, I, well, there's one thing to say, which is I don't have children or I'm not a full-time carer or anything like that. So again, like I had a degree of freedom that other people don't have. And I, and I understand that. I think lots of people do have the same degree of freedom, I, I would say. I still struggle with the money thing. Like, I, you know, I used, when I was working in companies, I've made considerably more money than I make now. And I do struggle with the fact that my friends are, you know, buying posh houses and so on and so forth. And that's not something that I'm able to do. But I also don't, don't want to kill myself anymore. And, you know, given that rather bleak trade-off, I think it's, I'm happy with the deal that I've done, I think. No, it's important to talk about because you know, there are a lot of people, millions, I would say, of people who are actually doing quite well in their jobs. They they have a nice house, they have a roof over their head, but they might be feeling like they don't have time to spend any of their money. They don't have time to spend with their kids. They don't have time for themselves. And I think that if that's the, this, this could be the audience for this book, right? Like people who have, in quotes, more than enough and are still not happy. Which is again something something we talk about in the book, but but also was some of the mo- most fascinating research that I did, so interviews and, and so forth, were the ones with the bankers at Goldman Sachs or the partner at KPMG or whatever it was, who were earning like million quid plus a year, but were miserable, couldn't sleep, um, you know, uh, uh, had like problems with eating, terrible skin, losing their hair, and. It's just extraordinary how, how how many times will we have to be told that having lots of money doesn't make you happy before we'll believe it? It's a bizarre quirk of the human condition that, and I, again, I say this in the book, but it's like everyone says, you know, and, and I think intuitively we understand that having lots of money doesn't make you happy. And yet in the back of our minds, we all slightly think, yeah, but it'd be different for me. I'd be the one person who could be a gazillionaire and, and be happy. Um, or, or the one person who, for whom being a gazillionaire would complete them, you know? The problem with money and those kind of intangible things, there's always more. And as you move up from senior director to partner in the law firm, you're now competing with the other partners and then you're competing with the other senior partners and then you're competing with that. And it, ne- there's never, it never stops, never ends. Scary, really. Mm. Even you saying that, the really sad, shallow example I can think of for me is like, I think there was a point where I was like, oh, if I have 50,000 followers on Instagram, that would be great. And now I'm, <laughs> you know, and I could very easily fall into the trap of like, well, I don't have 100,000. Someone else does. Yeah. And it really is never ending. And I've, I think you have to really nip it in the bud when those feelings arise because you'll be a treadmill forever. 
But um, you talk about some other fears in the book, and it was actually one of my favourite sections because I think we really need to tap into why we're so fearful of making this change, making this change that could be really good for your mental health. There was fear of losing your identity, fear of letting others down, fear of failure. I'm guessing it was maybe different for you because it was sort of a necessity at, at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, in a sense, I was lucky because... Um... The, the sort of mental health side of things for me got so bad that I had to make a change. It, it, it wasn't possible to go on as I was. I was um, spending most of my time crying in the loos at work and dashing home and just, it was just grim. So I kind of had, had to do something. The fear of failure thing is interesting. I think for the book, um, I spoke to a guy who'd been shot in Afghanistan, a guy called Vince Hockley. He's the third guy in the patrol to get shot. So he watches his first two mates get thumped and then he's the third guy. And he's lying there face down in the dirt in a compound in Afghanistan, thinking about the degree of, to which he's, he's sort of failed. And his approach to failure after that was to, and it sounds really simple, this, but it's, if you can do it, it's incredible, to isolate the things that you can control and the things that you can't control and to worry obsessively and focus obsessively on the things that you can control and try to ignore the things that you can't because that's just luck. And so much of failure comes down to luck and is therefore uncontrollable and therefore should be un unworry aboutable. I'm not complete on that journey, I have to say, but he, he was an amazing person to speak to. And just as a side note, the, the ending to that story, I mean, this guy, he, he wakes up in the hospital in Birmingham having died or having his heart stopped twice on the flight back from uh, Afghanistan, wakes up in the hospital surrounded by his family who unbeknownst to him have been told to come down to the hospital to sort of say goodbye. They say that he'll never make it through the first night. Obviously he does. They say he'll never work in the army again. He does 13 more years in the army. You'll never more, you'll never walk again. And he's now a fully qualified personal trainer. So he's an amazing dude. Anyway, I can wang on wow. about Vince Hockley forever, but um, letting people down was probably the, the other one that I really, and, and money was probably the other, other one that I really struggle with um, because this is a, a posh problem to have, right? But I had so many people that invested so much time and effort and money in getting me to the position that I was in a company at, that you might have heard of, sort of, you know, like in a good job in a good company. And I felt that um, to walk away from that, to go and do something different was, uh, was to sort of turn my back on all the effort that other people had put in. And I, I worried about that a lot. Um, mm. I didn't have any dependents, but I know lots of people who, who do have the same thing, which is like, if you have kids uh, or you're a carer or, or something like that, you're supporting other people with your income and you choose to go from being, I don't know, yeah, a lawyer to being a, a teacher, <clears throat> your decision doesn't just impact your lifestyle and your kind of outlook. It, it affects other people too. And that's a, that can lead to a, a kind of um, stasis where people don't move, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on that topic of letting people down, I know, you know, for me as well, it, something crops up that's more of a gendered thing as well. I mean, a lot of women have a lot of setbacks for lots of different reasons, but I do think men struggle in different ways. And I know you have a new podcast about men and mental health, which I haven't listened to yet, but I'm excited to. But I think there's a lot of pressure on men to, I don't know, whatever the stereotypes are to hold down a job and provide and all that stuff. That sounds really old school, but I think there's elements of that that still exist. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. And um, just because it's kind of unfashionable to talk about that um, or rather the sort of public conversation has on that sort of stuff has gone so quickly, but there the actual 
sort of change in the way that people think is is lagging behind. Definitely, like, there's a part about being a bloke where you you want to be like you want to be able to provide for people around you and so and so on and so forth. I'm sure that comes that's a that's a, a female issue as well, but um, it does it it came up a lot in the conversations that I had with other other men. Uh, everyone knows this this statistics now, but you know, suicide is the biggest killer of, of men under the age of 45. And yet women are much, much more likely to have a mental health problem than men. So there's something there, there's a very odd mismatch between, you know, prevalence and suicide. Mm. And I think the same is probably true, true in work too, uh, uh, to a degree. Although having said that, there's obviously, you know, issues around parenthood and so forth, which are very specific to the female experience as well. Mm. Yeah. And it, it's just really, it fascinates me really when I hear a friend of mine, a guy friend of mine recently said that he just felt really lost and like he didn't really belong to any clubs. Like he didn't feel like he belonged anywhere. And actually that's the flip side of living in a society that is designed for the patriarchy. You know, life is easy in many ways for him, but he just was like, I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel like I know what I'm here for. Yes, my goodness. I mean, but that's that's a kind of drifting archetype, I think. The fact that on paper your life is as comfortable as it could possibly be with this as a stick to sort of beat yourself. There's a guilt involved in swanning into a, you know, a, a fancy company or, you know, working as in a job that other people would want and still not being happy. You're kind of like, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I not? Why, why hasn't this completed me? Same thing is true of mental health, by the way. I, 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 probably the, alongside the actual kind of anxiety disorder, the biggest thing I struggled with for ages was guilt around, you know, what, what, what on earth have I got to worry about? You know, what's wrong? I've got a great life on, on paper. You know, I've got a lovely girlfriend and, and all this kind of stuff. Why am I so useless that I, you know, I'm, I'm worrying and not sleeping and things like that when other people have got it much worse? It's very common it's, with anxiety disorders, but also depressive conditions. Mm-hmm. that kind of guilt guilt comes alongside yeah and, and and like i said i think it's true in work as well for sure and and it's very jarring then to have these things not matching up but i wonder how much we're sold to and how much advertising and the media and stories have played into this narrative that isn't true like we get to that shiny top of the mountain and it's not enough but we've been told from you know when we were born that you know disney happy ending like we're happily ever after we're going to be fine and and there's more to that but i'm so glad you're talking about this it's it's really important and um really excited for people to read it oh thank you very much yeah it's, it, but that point's very interesting i think if there's one one of those few things i like people to take away from the book but one is that work has to be an end in itself it can't be a means to an end because if it's a means to an end that it, that that sort of if I can just get this promotion or get this pay rise or get win this award or whatever, how much money will be enough? How many awards will be enough? How many promotions will be enough? The answer to those kinds of questions is always more. And therefore, I think you'll always be unsatisfied. Whereas if the task of the target of work is to go to work and feel like you're doing something that you're good at and something that brings you a degree of happiness or kind of intellectual challenge, then yeah, you could, those things are achievable. You can actually get those things. And, and therefore, you'll, you'll move through your career with more comfort um, and happiness, I hope. Yeah, I heard someone describe it recently as milestone goals versus progress goals. And a progress goal is like, I'm going to enjoy the, 
the process and the progress of what I'm doing. And I think that completely makes sense of why a promotion or a milestone can be an anticlimax. Because if you get the promotion, but you've not seen your family for six months and you're unhealthy (laughs) and you've lost literally six months of your life, you're going to get the promotion and just be like, what? Really? Is this what I've wasted all my time for? And I think, but if you'd spent that six months getting better at your job and then enjoying it and then getting promoted, there wouldn't be an anticlimax. Yes. And uh, there's a sort of other thing that's quite interesting about that, which is if you're a, a milestone goal kind of person, you're also this kind of person who dismisses milestone goals when you reach them. Because you're like, right, I'm going to get to 50,000 followers or I'm going to sell this many books or I'm going to think. And then you get there and you go, right, no, not enough. Next <laughs> milestone. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's kind of completely never ending. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. What's the argument there? Maybe let go of the milestones. Who knows? Or celebrate them more or, or, or celebrate, celebrate the more. journey. But no, I, I really, really enjoyed the book. You're such a great writer. It's just so funny. You're just, there's loads of things I underlined and laughed um, at oh, about because um, it was so relatable. But the thing that I underlined really, what I felt the book was about was just staying sane. And I wondered if that was that was the key message for you. hundred percent. And like, like we t- talked about um, earlier, I transitioned from a, from a corporate career to a bit- bitty career you might transition from a corporate career to another type of corporate career or from a bitty career to a corporate career or whatever your path or journey is, there will still be days that are miserable and there will still be Sunday evenings where you're dreading Monday morning and Friday evening where all you want to do is go out and get, you know, hammer drunk to try and forget, forget the week that just happened. That will happen in every, in every career. And in the same way with mental health, you know, I'm a lot, lot better than I was four or five years ago, but I still have terrible days and shitty weeks. You know, it's, it's just part of being a human. And if you can hold that thought in your mind and try to, yeah, remember that, uh, you know, you're going to have good days and bad days. I guess that point around staying sane, and it's actually something I heard on a, one of previous episodes of the podcast. Maybe it was with Daisy Buchanan. And she was talking about our relationship with our jobs and our relationship with other people. And I love that idea. What you're trying to do is find a job that you can, that you love rather than a job that you sort of have like an erotic fling with. Do you know what I mean? Because when you're in a marriage with someone or a long-term relationship, you have great days, but you also have some like big arguments and some sleeping on the sofa and all that kind of stuff. So what you're trying to do is, is identify a job that you can love and then work at it in the same way that you work at your relationships with other humans. And separately get off social media it's bad news man and i was really good at it for a while now i still find myself creeping back onto it and so trying to keep the addiction at bay how do you keep off it well um firstly that's such a good analogy i just want to say because i think people get confused with love your job as like the we work neon sign of like passion and like love stay up all night for your job when actually what you're talking about is like a quieter steady kind of love yes on social media i mean you you really hit the nail on the head with that about how comparison and the job envy that we get is really hard because you can have a good day and it can still be ruined if you see someone else doing something that triggers you a little bit but for me it's about taking accountability of what you're following and and the experience you're having because social media in itself is not bad it's the things and the people that are on it that are, can be bad so i for me yeah, I, yeah. I open instagram and honestly i see i see people i really like on there doing really cool stuff but i was the same i got rid of i i had lots of like comedians and things like that which which worked and then i started getting served sort of property porn stuff and i thought oh well yeah this is, i'm interested in architecture 
thin end of the wedge though because what it really <laughs> was was here's a really beautiful house that you'll never own <laughs> yeah so now i have to get rid of them oh i i, I, I so know know what you mean and but on that on that note of, of good days and bad days and i think what you're saying is get to know yourself really well like at the beginning of the episode when you said write things down if you're having one of those days where where really you're not in a good headspace i, I do think it's like don't go on there yeah the sort of subjectivity of it the, the the broader the broader idea of of staying sane uh, in a world which is more or less I think this is a there was this is the there's a Matt Haig book about this it's staying sane in a world which is pretty much entirely designed to to drive you mad I mean and none of this is rocket science but it really really helps me and it's stuff that I continue to do today and it really really helps exercise uh, cutting down on boozing cognitive behavioral therapy or the kind of basic tenets of challenging and how you go about challenging negative thinking and thought patterns and then asking for help and being comfortable to say to someone, God, I had a really bad day today. I'm feeling really insecure about my job at the moment, or I just saw my friend got this amazing award and it's made me question my own choices and so on and so forth. And kind of integrating those behaviors helps to ensure against the social media the news media, which at the moment is so grim and bleak um, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it, there are, there are and again, this is quite a blokey point uh, because I think generally blokes like sort of practical DIY for the mind kind of attitude. But I love that there's real things that you can do in the real world that will make you feel happier mm-hmm. quite quickly. Yeah, no, I love that. And we're, we're all so different. That's the thing with social media as well. Like what works for one of us won't work for the other. And I think it's it's quite a personal relationship I think we have with our phones. My last point on that is I completely agree because I've interviewed nearly 350 amazing, quote unquote, very successful individuals on this podcast. Honestly, it always boils down to those basics that you just said. It's like yeah. there is no book in the world that has a magic pill it's really about taking care of ourselves, having good relationships, drinking some water, going for a walk. Like we're basically leaves that need like water and sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a problem because the things that are the most powerful things are so simple and therefore people don't tend to do them. And also they've been repeated at, you know, ad nauseum. So people go, yeah, I know I got to go outside and do some exercise, but you know, I'm a busy bee or whatever. Yeah, well, can't have it both ways, you know? Mm. Thanks again, Josh, for all your work. Oh, thank you. Seriously, two really brilliant books that we've mentioned. So people listening, if you love what you heard, go and buy both those books. They look really good together on the bookshelf as well and um, really important work. So thank you so much for today. No, thank you for having me. It's a joy to be on this podcast. <laughs>